Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Everybody is sleeping well. You okay back there? I thought that we could start today with a poem. This is by a poet I like very much, an American poet named Rod Smith. I'll read it twice. We work too hard. We're too tired to fall in love. Therefore, we must overthrow the government. We work too hard We're too tired to overthrow the government. Therefore, we must fall in love. I'll read it again. (laughs) We work too hard. We're too tired to fall in love. Therefore, we must overthrow the government. We work too hard. We're too tired to overthrow the government. Therefore, we must fall in love. I feel after his words, I should just bow, and we should all just go and do what he says. (laughs) So, here we are. We have the government that we have. We're tired. Does anybody feel the tiredness when you get to a place like this? I don't mean tiredness literally like, oh, you need to go sleep more. But just, uh, it's so tiring to be somebody. (laughs) You sit down on your ass, you close your eyes, and you try and follow your breath. And all you're doing is creating a me. Can everybody see that? It's such a tragedy, I think, to miss your life because you're watching a movie of yourself. And then to confuse the movie for who you are. Yeah. 
And then how can we fall in love with our own life? We're missing our whole life. So then you think the problem is the government. <laughs> so you try to overthrow the government. They did it in Bolivia. They did it in Cuba, Syria, Egypt. And also, we see these revolutions that are so inspiring, especially when they start. So much uh, pain finally gets released and change happens. And then a new government forms, a new organization forms, and it's all the same again. Sometimes it's even worse. So, political revolution uh, or making change through electoral politics probably isn't going to do what we want to do. So we need more than that. We need people who can stop. This is the first thing. Number one, we need people who know how to stop. Which means you come here and you sit down and you actually know how to stop. Literally, in your own mind. A stop running. How many of you are running away? You can see it when you sit still. How you're running and running still. I'm scared of being who you are. I think people are so scared of their aliveness. To me, this is like the whole world of being an adult is the balance between tolerating your aliveness and tolerating how much you need to anesthetize yourself. It's like this ratio. And when you sit down and you look at what's in your mind, it's all historical. It's all habit. And even if you think it's about the future, all the contents from the past. So, that's the first thing, is we need people to stop internally and externally. So there are people in our culture, many of you are in the room, who need to tie yourself to trees. <laughs> I mean literally, to actually stop the insanity. Or maybe you need to um, go to your employer and say, the way we're doing things here is wrong. I don't support this. It takes a lot of courage to stop. So when I say the first thing we need to all do is be able to stop, I mean it's internal, but it's also outward. Uh, as you start to get a hang of my message, it always has these two sides. So that's the first thing is stopping. Um, the second thing is um, we need a spiritual practice. How can you uh, have a life without being connected to something bigger than yourself? However you articulate that. When I sit still and my mind is busy, I think it's so annoying. I think the most annoying thing on the planet 
is me. Does anybody else feel this way? It's such, a, it's such a reduced experience of life to be so small all the time and to always be moving from this pivot point of me. You can't really be happy for other people because if they're really doing well, all you can think about is how it affects you. And also, if you're a caregiver of, or in the helping professions and people are doing really badly, all you can think about is how you can help them and fix them. And that's also exhausting, actually. You ever tried to fix somebody? <laughs> He's happy. I went sailing last night, and uh, we went right out to the mouth there of Desolation Sound, which I didn't know is actually our neighbor, and just looked out at There was a bald eagle just sitting right next to us on a rock. And uh, the person I went sailing with said, it's beautiful here. Said, yeah, let's just sit here for a while and just look. Says, okay. Wanna have a cigarette? <laughs> no, I said, no, I'm okay. I really wish I could have had a cigarette. Then I wouldn't feel good. So uh, it's so important to be connected to this land that we live in. So that's the second thing, we need to have a spiritual practice. I think without a spiritual practice, just the stopping and the revolution and the political work, it's not enough. We just tend to keep overthrowing structures and then because inside us is patriarchy, inside of us is this desire for certainty, inside of us is hierarchy. You can see the top-down way we think when you're meditating. You can see the, like, control tower. And most of us, when we have trouble, we go up really high to the control tower, and then we try and do things from there. So that then, when we make political change, we bring that internal schema. You see? So we have to have a spiritual practice that undoes that. And third... We need new stories. We need an imagination. And when you're caught up in the same habits over and over again, there's no imagination. I think sometimes how crazy it is that uh, you can go to a party and you can talk about the fluidity of gender. You can talk about carbon fiber bicycles. But you can't talk about an alternative to capitalism. As soon as you bring that up, goes, oh, you're crazy. <laughs> you're crazy. But our growth-based economy is at odds 
with doing any kind of real deep change with regards to our climate and inequality and the lack of intimacy in our relationships. I think those are the three issues, really. There's so many issues, but in my life, those are the three issues. Climate change, economic inequality, growing economic inequality, and also the lack of intimacy that's in our relationships. So many relationships are business deals, even. So, um, I don't mean business deals, like in terms of like you find somebody because it's a financial benefit or something. I mean a business deal where our whole body is not in it. We don't bring to our relationships our whole life. And then you feel it, it wears away at you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you? So we need new stories. In other words, we need an imagination. And in a way, one of the reasons why we're going back to this old text, you might think, oh, it's traditional, we're going back 2,600 years, doesn't neuroscience say cool things? You know? But actually, um, it's to stretch our imagination so that we can see our life in a, in a wider scope. So it's like your life is a river, but a river needs banks. You know? And so these teachings kind of hold us. And I, and I hope that, that you feel that these teachings are also uh, your practice. The studying is also your practice. So when I'm speaking, um, uh, don't just listen with your intellect. Like, oh yeah, that totally vibes with the book I'm reading. <laughs> I've never been able to say vibe any ever. And now I've been living in BC only for one month. And I'm saying vibe. I know, it's so strange. Yeah, I'm really worried about this. <laughs> so, um, Where was I? Not listening with our intellect. When, I, when I'm speaking, uh, I really encourage you, as you're listening, to inhale. And to, to take in the teachings with your breathing. Not just like, oh yeah, I agree with that, I don't agree with that. You know? There's a study done where, many of you might know this, but there was this really interesting study done about five or ten years ago, where they studied how people read the newspapers. And apparently people go through the newspaper looking for the headlines that agree with their worldview. And then that's what they read. That's not so hard anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's not so hard anymore. Exactly. Or on your Facebook, right? On your Facebook, you get the news feed of your friends. So hopefully there are developers creating more interesting algorithms. So when you do a Google search, you don't get just what you're looking for. Yeah, I'm sure. What's it called? DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo. It's a different there algorithm. There we go. So that's what I'm talking about. So this third piece is the imagination. For our imagination to open up internally, but also culturally, which includes a technology that can help us have a broader imagination than Tetris. That shows how dated my... <laughs>
one day, a student named Rohitasa goes to the Buddha and says, Is it possible to reach the end of suffering by traveling? Isn't that a good question? So remember how dukkha was defined? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, uh, not getting what you want is dukkha, being separated from what you love is dukkha, and then he says the whole psychophysical condition is dukkha. So a student says to him, is it possible to to go beyond dukkha by traveling. Hasn't everyone here tried this? Mm-hmm. I think this is a really great. I do this a lot when I read these old texts, is I pay a lot of attention to the question rather than the answer. Because the questions tend to be the simple questions that you actually have in your heart that you never ask. It takes a lot of humility, I think, to actually have a question. So the Buddha says, um, no. And Rohitasa says, in a previous life, I was a god with really long legs, and I could walk across all the oceans and all the lands and all through the cosmos. And I can also walk at the speed of light. And I couldn't find the end of birth or aging and suffering. And so the Buddha says, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then he says something interesting. Is the whole cosmos, Rohitasa, is your body. And that everything that exists in the world exists inside your body. So the world that you should pay attention to in order to resolve suffering is your body. Isn't that interesting? It's not a very religious answer. (laughs) He's saying, actually, it's not beyond your body. It's actually your body is the whole world. When you inhale and exhale, just inhaling and exhale, you feel your body. And you might also feel how as you're breathing, the trees are breathing. And the birds are breathing. Same air. But then you have this linguistic system that says, oh, but it's mine. It's my breath. But actually, this is an interesting exercise. If you take your finger and you put it in your nostrils and you try to measure, well, you don't have to do it. We'll do this as a partner exercise. (laughs) And you try to find the location where it becomes your breath. You won't find it. If you take your finger, try this, let's try this one. Take your finger and you point it towards your face. And you point it like at your forehead and then at your chest, and your shoulder, your cheek, your tooth, and your eyebrow. And you just start moving your finger around. You'll notice there's this one place 
where it feels like you're pointing at yourself. And if you move it just a centimeter, it doesn't feel like you're pointing at you. Can everybody feel that? <laughs> if you get the right distance with your fingertip, there's this one place where it feels like, whoa. That is absurd. <laughs> that is a construct that we've created through perception. Oh, that's me. But the Buddha is saying if you really pay attention to the breathing body, you'll start to see that it's not me. That me is an add-on. And when you start to see that, suffering starts to decrease. And also, love works this way, too. Because when you have a relationship and you think that you love somebody, that's all poor theory. Because you don't love anybody. And they don't love you. Because love does not belong to you. Instead, love is what arises in the absence of me. When two people are together, it's a very interesting bird. <laughs> it's the Cessna bird, beaver bird. Um, last night when we were sailing, there was this crazy bird in the sky. I had never seen anything like it. So I said, do you have binoculars? So he said, oh yeah. So I went and got the binoculars. And then I looked up. So strange looking. And it was a float plane carrying a canoe. <laughs> so that's why it didn't look like a plane. It had this big red canoe on the bottom. Anyways. Um, I'm not drinking espresso. So this is very challenging for me. So that's why all these tangents every morning. Because uh, once a week, I leave my house. I take the ferry. And I go all the way to downtown Victoria. And I, I go have an espresso. And then go home. It's such an expensive espresso. <laughs> David's been there. It's a place called Habit. Anybody been there? Yes. So good. Yeah. I don't know why they named it that. So, um, but if you don't have espresso and you, you drink coffee, you should know that in the shop here at Hollyhock, they sell Denman Island chocolate, which is like the most amazing thing. Okay, enough. So, when, when, when you're not moving from the place of self-centeredness, a love arises. It has nothing to do with uh, you. And it's surprising because it can arise in any moment and is not human. So that's why Rod Smith might say, we work too hard, we're too tired to overthrow the government, therefore we must fall in love. And I would add, 
Well, maybe falling in love is the greatest act of disobedience. Because when you're moving from the place of love, you actually care about things. You care for things. So, this is all an introduction to the text that we're going to look at. Um, before we go forward, are there any questions or comments? And then we're going to jump in, because this is day two. You know about love, um, like humans have a, a, an idea and a concept of mm -hmm, love, mm -hmm. and, and they feel it. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it has nothing to do with us really. Yeah. It's kind of an energy. Yeah. It's, but it exists in for the other realms, like maybe the animals feel some kind feel the feeling maybe. of love, mm -hmm. probably when they. Yeah. Well, you see, when they give birth, they lick this little deer, you know, till she gets yeah. stand up and be dry, yeah. and yeah. it just seems to be yeah. the same kind of yeah. um, energy. Yeah. But uh, so I guess it's like you said, it doesn't belong to us. Huh? Mm. It's mm. exists in the universe. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean when you say it doesn't belong to us? We feel it, but um, I, I think it's exactly like breathing. Okay. You don't breathe. No. If you have a lot of trauma in your life, or you have grief that you haven't really felt, and you carry a lot of emotion that you haven't allowed uh, in your body, then when you breathe, you really control your breathing. Because you're scared to trust your body. You can't trust your body. So, um, this is what trauma is. Trauma is when an event has happened to your body, but it hasn't happened to you yet. Like, your body, your body has had the event, but then it stays there and hasn't been turned into experience yet. It's so good that our bodies can do this. It saves our lives. But it hasn't been an experience yet. So then the ego has to come in and control your breathing because you don't really trust your body because you're scared of the event. But the event's over. So healing from trauma is really about the fact that there's this floating event that needs to have an experience. You see. So then you can start trusting your body more and more and learning how to let your breath just go. And then what happens is your body can breathe and you don't have to manipulate your breathing anymore. That's very profound uh, experience to just be able to trust your body. Not to manipulate your breath. Yoga students have a hard time with this. Because in yoga practice we control our breathing. But in meditation practice we don't. And it's good to be able to do both things. So, to me, it's the same as love. Is um, to actually have the feeling that your body's breathing and there's nobody breathing it. Or, like, to sit in meditation and look at thoughts and see that there's nobody thinking. <laughs> the thoughts. It's pretty amazing. 
And where do they go? Beets, when you cut them open, if you have good heirloom beets, they have the rings of the moon inside them for the whole cycle of their life. And that is the mind of a beet. Just like leaves in the fall fall from the trees. And that's the mind of a tree. tree ha- Everywhere in the natural world where there's life, there's mind. But mind in human form is thinking, is thoughts. See, that's also mind. Same mind as the mind of nature. But it shows up in us as thoughts. But it's not us. You can certainly think, but there's also just a stream of thoughts that's just thoughts. So, maybe love works the same way. There's a jazz musician I really love named Ornette Coleman. And uh, he says, when the music's really going during a performance, his job is to get out of the way. Isn't that nice? So, let's review. The Buddha says, This is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. This psychophysical condition is dukkha. So that's the definition of dukkha. And you can see here why uh, translators have, I think, intelligently not translated it and just left this term dukkha. Because it's hard to find the right English word. Pain, suffering, lack, stress, it's all of those things. And then he says, this is the arising. So now he's defining the term arising. This is also known as the second noble truth. It is craving which is repetitive, wallowing in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, and I love this one, craving for non-existence. So, I want you to see here that he's setting up Uh, four things. Uh, This is dukkha, this is the arising, this is the ceasing, this is the path. Can everybody see that pattern? So yesterday we covered this is dukkha. Today I want to look at this is the arising. And in the lecture tonight, I'm going to do all four and explain how they all work together. So this is the arising So what does that mean? What's arising? What's arising is our reactivity. In other words, 
If the first piece is this is dukkha, you could translate that as this is life. When something is showing up, you say to yourself, this is life. And then, as soon as you acknowledge that this is life, then arising comes. Which nowadays you might say, what comes up? Right? That's what we say in psychology. You know? What comes up? And he's saying, what is arising? It's craving, which is repetitive, which is rooted in attachment and greed. It's obsessive, indulging in this and that. And then he says, craving for what? Craving for stimulation, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. I think he really covers it. So, when something arises, this is what arises with it. And it seems like it's built in, doesn't it? It seems like when sadness arises, Denman Island chocolate is built in. (laughs) When loneliness arises, red wine is built in. So what mindfulness is, is being able to slow that whole process down and from an embodied perspective, see how your reaction to what arises is not built into what arises. So I like to think of mindfulness as like a wedge. And it's a wedge that opens up space or opens up a path between what one is feeling and what you think you need to do about it. It's like habitual. And it's habitual. Yeah. So and it's something that's developed over time based on our lifetime experience. Yeah. And he says it's more than habitual. He says it's repetitive. It's rooted in greed. It's obsessive. And it's always about craving for stimulation. So our society really feeds that. Big time. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing that, that... So let's define these words. Attachment. The definition of attachment is wanting to continue pleasurable experience. Okay? You have a bite of chocolate, and what do you want to do before you've finished... The piece of chocolate. Yeah, you're already thinking about the next bite. Greed. So greed is very interesting to me. I spend a lot of time thinking about greed. Greed is, I think, at bottom, a way of avoiding making choices. Because if you want everything, or you have everything, you don't actually need to choose what you really need. Because choosing what you really want means giving up something else. So in a way, the energy of greed is actually the energy of not really wanting to choose. 
what's truly nourishing. We think of it as not really wanting to choose, but it's deeper than that. It's more existential than that. It's not actually wanting to be in your life, choosing one thing. Can you go through that again? Let's say it a different way. Yeah, just that it's not so yeah. clear for me that... The only real satisfaction that we can have in our life is the satisfaction of reality. Okay. But the satisfaction of reality is realizing that reality is always frustrating. And so... All of spiritual practice is learning how to tolerate our frustration. Okay, so greed is a denial of reality. And greed is a denial of reality. And it's also a denial of one's desire. Because when you're greedy, you're hungry. Mm. And the thing that hunger is always hungry for is more hunger. And so hunger is always going to be frustrating. Are you following the logic here? Hunger is always going to be frustrated. right? So if you stay greedy, then you don't have to enter into the energy of frustration. You don't have to be frustrated. Is this discernment? Are you talking about... I'm just talking about the dukkha part. I'm not talking about discernment yet. It's a hoarding. Hoarding. It's yeah. bringing so that you don't have to. You just you, know, you can sit on top of your big pile and go, ha ha, I'm, I'm covered. Exactly. Or you predecided that you already want more. Yeah. But you actually never say, ha ha, I'm covered because you continue to gather more. Then it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, but that person's got a bigger pile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, can we tie this to Dukkha for a second? Because if, if we are fiction, like if we are the stories we tell ourselves, which is, I think, what our personality is, right? It's the stories we tell ourselves. Then underneath all that, there may be some core stories, but they're not held together by anything other than memory. So that means that in the center of the personality, there is always going to be lack. There's always going to be dukkha. There's always going to be a sense of lack because the storyteller can't ever feel satisfied because it's fiction. It doesn't actually exist. So without getting too intellectual, but for those of you who are, you know, this is called ontology. Right? The self doesn't exist ontologically. It only exists psychologically. In other words, you feel like a self but there isn't actually a thing that you can find. But when you feel like a self, there's always a sense of lack 
So when you experience, okay, so then the lack gets repressed. Okay, and whenever something gets repressed, then there's projection. So as we repress our lack, we project it outside of ourselves. And one way that we project the lack outside of ourselves is through the idea of God. This is John Lennon's great insight. John Lennon said, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Do you know that song? You don't know that song. You should know that song. I, I can't sing it. It's so embarrassing. So, um, so we project onto God what we lack. In the same way that you project onto your idea of another person what you lack. And we do this with money. Right? So that the more we feel lack, the more we become greedy for capital. Because the more capital you think you have, the less, the less you think you'll feel lack. You see? And then you get the big pile. But then you get double lack because you've got the pile. <laughs> And you know it didn't work. Triple lack. Second, the pile needs this thing called, which I've been learning about lately, maintenance. <laughs> have you heard about this? Yeah. So you have all of your toys and like whatever, and then it needs upkeep, which is really, really exhausting. Because upkeep doesn't give you more capital. It's just taking care of the capital. And then you start to become hyper-aware of impermanence. Because the capital is actually impermanent, you see? And then you become paranoid. And I, I'm making this up, because I don't know if this is empirically true, but I think that the more capital that you have that is connected to trying to fill something in your life, the more you will become paranoid. Because the capital is impermanent. You see? Now, I don't know if this is true, but this is my theory. Now, so capital can't solve the lack. So the only way to solve the lack is cocaine. <laughs> because if you then numb yourself completely then you just don't have any lack. And then if you start getting a little lack, you just, have, you just get more cocaine, <laughs> basically. So paranoia and war are the same thing. Yeah, yeah, we can get to that. So, but let's keep going on this line for a second, which is that when you then have all your basic needs met, and you have this lack, the Buddhist response is, there's only one way to work with it, which is you open up to the lack. You open up to the lack, and it's not lack anymore. It's actually the nature of how things are, which is that 
The personality doesn't have a core that can be grounded. This is like the core insight of the Buddha. This is the opposite of Western psychology. Sorry. We'll get to that part. Does this make sense? Can you repeat yes. it? The yeah. core personality. So, yeah. So one's personality doesn't have the core that we think it has. You see? Now, this goes against religion. Because in religion, we're told that at the core of the personality is one's soul. Right? And that when you die, that stuff is what gets reincarnated. So you can see that the Buddha is also critiquing religion. So the Buddhist perspective is, oh, the soul is also a construction. A human construction. It's not a part of the lack. That the soul is another way of filling the lack with an idea. Mm-hmm. This is very radical. But this thing. is where we want to get to: is the lack. Is you want to touch? Yeah. That. So the Buddha is like, he's into the lack. Mm-hmm. And now you can start to get at what's meant by the word dukkha. It's not just stress reduction. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I, do? You see, do you see where we're going here? Mm-hmm. You can't separate uh, the psychological from the existential. How do you cipher? So you obsessively indulge in this and that, craving for stimulation, right? Mm-hmm. Craving for existence. I exist. Craving for non-existence. I remember teaching a silent retreat once, and there was a man on the retreat who really was getting this. On silent retreat, this is the place usually that impacts people's practice more than anything. And he was really getting this. He was really seeing how the self, he didn't actually exist. And then one day, he just uh, went into... Uh, the room, he came in the room with me and he, he pounded the floor and said, I exist. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, ha- I really felt it, this experience of like, whoa, when you start to really see it. It's uh, profound. So, um, also craving for non-existence. So we talked a little bit about Robin Williams uh, two days ago. Was that two days ago? Yesterday. Yesterday. Mm-hmm. Or Sunday. Two days ago. First yes. It was actually two days ago. <laughs> okay. Um, so one way of craving for non-existence, if we have a spectrum, is what's really popular, I think, sometimes in meditative practice, is trying to meditate your way into a bliss state so that you don't exist. And the other end of the spectrum... <laughs> is taking your own life. Because taking your own life is the craving for non-existence. And people in the helping professions, educators, doctors, we are so scared when people come to us 
who want to take their own life. That even legally we're bound to have a contract for safety and report it and so on. And in all of that legal maneuvering we have to do, we completely miss this person who's in front of us, who's coming to us, saying, I want to die. I don't want to exist. And so if we can't tolerate what they're feeling, first of all, it's an amazing thing when someone actually says to you, I don't want to exist. That means they want to be in relationship with you. But we can't hear that because we're so scared that they might not exist and that we'll get sued or whatever. But actually, when somebody says, I don't want to exist, so from this perspective, so I'm going to just kind of read this from the Buddhist perspective here. What's actually happening is that a part of their personality that is too, where there's too much pain, there's too much dukkha, can't be tolerated anymore. Like it, it can't exist anymore because the dukkha level is too high. But that's not the whole person. That's just the person in these conditions. So the Buddhist perspective is, you don't listen to that as the person. You have to hear that as the dukkha speaking. Right? The dukkha is too much. So the response would be, yeah, that's too much. That's too much. And let the craving for non-existence have a voice. And let the craving for non-existence grow and have a voice. And knowing that all mental states are impermanent and usually they don't last longer than five minutes. So how do you let the craving for non-existence play out full, full, full spectrum for five minutes in relationship until it doesn't have power anymore? Because really the craving for non-existence is the craving for existence. It's the craving to exist in a way that's better than the craving for non-existence, right? Like the craving to die is the craving that's articulated, is the craving to be alive, right? Because all aversion is a clinging to life. You don't like it because it's not conducive to life. So, that's why I think it's profound here that the Buddha ad adds non-existence into the mix of thinking about craving. And in between not wanting to exist as dissociation and not wanting to exist as suicide, the middle is um, uh, uh, binging on sitcoms. Numbing. What's that? Numbing. Numbing. Yeah. World Cup. Sorry. So this craving for non-existence, is it not just the craving for life without dukkha? Yeah. 
And that's why Rohitasa comes to the Buddha and says, can no I get out of this? Dukkha, right? What's that? But there is no life without Dukkha. There's no life without Dukkha. <laughs> so you're craving something that, that is just not Yeah. And that's why when Rohitasa comes to the Buddha and he says, can, can I get out of this by traveling? <laughs> the Buddha says, the only place that you can travel to really work with this is your body, is this. You can't get out of this. That we know of. Yeah. Another way of saying this is nobody has gotten out of this alive. (laughs) But what happens is, is we get stuck in the craving for non-existence and just we're in that channel. There's a wonderful Buddhist teacher uh, named Robert Thurman, and he says, uh, it's really about when a television set finally achieves clickerhood. Do you get that? No. No. The whole practice is really about when a television set, think about a television set that has one channel. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's stuck. You're stuck in one movie. So the whole practice is when a television set finally achieves clickerhood, you can click to another channel. This is the energy of non-existence. This is craving for non-existence. And you should see this too next time that you're, you know, watching Breaking Bad and you're in your ninth episode and you've eaten seven bags of chips. This is the craving for non-existence. Yes? So, to support someone in a uh, situation who's stuck mm. and you give them a voice, mm. um, that's what will help them become unstuck? Yes. Therapists, especially therapists are trained to fear suicide are so freaked out when somebody comes who wants to die that I think they miss this amazing opportunity. And uh, that comes from our own fears about our own death, our own loss, our own inability to accommodate dukkha. And um, when somebody comes who wants to die, we have to change our attitude which is, um, we have to enter it with them and really explore it, because it's true. Some part of them wants to die and can't keep going anymore, and that's the moment where transformation and healing are are possible. I bet everybody here has had a moment in their life where they thought, I can't go on like this. I I can't do this anymore. And it's probably like the same month that you made a really good decision. Or you just repressed the hell out of it. (laughs) You know, that's when you started watching Oprah. (laughs) Yeah. Going back to the decision making and the greed. Yeah. um, So when we're 
meeting where we are not able to make a decision. Yeah. Can you speak more on that? I think what I said that you wanted me to repeat earlier is that being greedy is a way of avoiding making choices. Because you have one task in mind. Multiple tasks in mind. If you have everything, you don't need to choose what you want. Yeah, like a buffet. <laughs> like hollyhock at breakfast time. Yeah. 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 I get to the buffet table at breakfast time and I don't know what to do. And then I feel greedy. Like, oh, well, I'll just have a like everything. <laughs> um, this seems like a good time to have a break. Uh, so, let's take a fifteen-minute break, and uh, and then we'll keep going. Thank you.